Grow marketing culture and sketchy MLMs have given modern business a bad reputation. It feels harder than ever to succeed as an entrepreneur, even though we've got an abundance of info and tech right at our fingertips. If you feel frustrated running your business, stress over your sales goals, or are baffled by marketing strategies, you've come to the right place. You deserve to run a successful, sustainable business without spamming all of your friends or wasting time and money on marketing gimmicks. This is the Sell It Sister podcast, and you're going to learn how to make more money without complex systems or sleazy sales tactics. I'm Erica Tebbins, and I teach highly motivated, female, and gender expansive entrepreneurs that selling doesn't have to suck. I've been running successful businesses and teaching others how to sell smarter, earn more, and create raving fans for over 15 years. And I'm excited to share what I've learned with you. If you want success without truly serving your clients, profits without any passion, or the next get rich quick scheme, I'm not your gal. But if you're all in as an entrepreneur, want to make a difference with your work, and are ready to run a business you're proud of, then get ready to sell it, sister. I am absolutely thrilled to bring you this episode today because I interview the woman whose book completely changed my life a few years ago. And initially, I was just going to record an episode talking about the book, and then I was actually able to get her to come on. So this is going to be way better than you just hearing me ramble on and on about it. So our guest today is Tara Moore, who is an expert on women's leadership and well-being. She's the author of Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead. And she's also the creator of the Playing Big Leadership Program for Women. So you can find more about her and uh, follow her on Instagram and um, go check out her website at taramore.com. So it's T-A-R-A-M-O-H-R.com. And then you'll definitely want to read her book, Playing Big. So I read this a few years ago. We talk a little bit about in the episode how um, I came to find it and her uh, course that I joined after I had read it once I found out that she had a course. But really and truly, I feel like it was fate. I was meant to read this book when I did. uh, And I had the great fortune of being able to meet her in person And that is why I was able to hook up with her and actually get her uh, to come and and speak with me so you can hear it directly from her. I feel so much gratitude for the fact that she was willing to be generous with her time and share her knowledge and wisdom on the Sell It Sister podcast. And I just know you are going to get so, so, so much out of this episode. I actually bumped this up like three or four weeks in my schedule because I was like, nope, this needs to get out now. The time is now. This is really, really, really important. Uh, There is something that she says in the episode, and I just want to reiterate it uh, at the top. She says, the amount of suffering in the world is always exactly equal to our capacity to heal that suffering. And in between when we recorded this and now, there is unfortunately even more suffering. So I want to recommit to playing big, playing bigger. I want to encourage all of you to do the same because we have within us the ability to do good in the world, and we just need to get out of our own way. Lastly, before we dive in to the good stuff, I just want to say, I think there's a few times in here where I specifically say like women in business or women entrepreneurs. And as you know, from the intro, that does not just mean, uh, you know, cisgender, uh, heteronormative, women, right? So this, uh, this show is for cis women, trans women, non-binary folks, gender fluid folks, anyone, right? So, and I, and I emphasize that because of the fact that how we are conditioned in society as anyone other than, uh, cisgender, heterosexual, 
white male, right? We like any, anyone who falls outside of that, uh, of those labels has really been conditioned in many different ways to play small and to minimize and to doubt ourselves. So I just wanted to, to call that out, uh, because it's, it's something that is important to me. And I just want to say that I recognize that, uh, it is far more than just cis women who are, who feel the pressure to, um, be smaller than their potential, um, to not strive to their full potential, their full potential. Um, and in many cases when they do actually encounter, uh, a lot of danger and, um, a lot of, of harm. And so I, I just want to be, uh, really mindful of that and, and sensitive to that. But, uh, with all of that being said, I know that we are brilliant and talented and empathetic and compassionate and strong and resilient and wise and all the good things. And we owe it to ourselves and we owe it to our each other. We owe it to uh, the next generations of people coming after us, you know, our children, our grandchildren, et cetera, to really show up and uh, let our gifts shine through and do the work that we are meant to do. So now I will stop rambling and get into the episode. And if you read the book or if you've read the book, please let me know. Let's talk about it. I would love it. And now on to the episode. Hi, Tara. Thank you so, so, so much for being on the Sell It Sister podcast with me. I have been excitedly awaiting this. And I, ha- I know I have so many people who are already like, I can't wait for this episode to come out. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. Yeah. So a little quick backstory before we dive in, because people were like, how the heck are you, you know, talking to her and stuff. So uh, I actually got to meet you a couple of years ago, like in your hometown. And I had flown out there for a mastermind retreat all the way from New York. And I brought my copy of the book, which I have right here. Um, and because I, I knew I was going to be meeting you that night at dinner and I brought it so that you could sign it because it totally changed my life and my flights were delayed and I was so nervous. I was like, I'm going to get there. It's me too late. And I'm not, and like, yeah, just so funny. And I remember I like pulled up to the restaurant and like, before I even said hi to my like mastermind people, I was like, hang on, let me get out this book. I need her to sign it. We got to take a picture, like the whole thing. So yeah, that was, that was great. But then I got the immense joy of talking with you that night over dinner. And it was just, it was so lovely to finally meet the person who had such an impact on my life. So yeah, like it was just, it was wonderful, beautiful fate. <laughs> I, I think there's so many things about that story that are worth underlining because when I got your invitation, I, I very much remember that conversation too. And I remembered your sincerity and your, you know, I just felt like, oh, like you were speaking from the heart and, and I was so touched by the impact the book had on you. And I felt indebted to you because you have been spreading the word about it, but it's a great example of like all those choices, like the choice to be in community with other women to go to a mastermind like that, right? Like the choice to invest in yourself in that way. Um, the, the, you know, the women's communities like that of the Hivery, our, my co-working space, which is how I knew the person who was doing the mastermind. And then you also felt comfortable speaking up and, you know, bringing your book and all of those things can feel vulnerable and scary. You know, I know when I am encountering someone whose work I know really well and have to like, go say that it's scary, you know, it go is. say how that, say hello. And how do I get this out into one sentence, if the impact has been so huge, like all those things. So it's a beautiful testament to making those choices. Yeah. Thank you. I know I, I'm always like, oh my gosh, I don't want to sound like a lunatic, but like, I, you know, want to, I don't want to like miss the opportunity to, to tell someone. So yeah. And I, uh, I originally had read playing big in 2016 So I had a different business then, and I was going through some shifts, and I used to listen to the Lively Show podcast all the time back then, and that was where I first heard you on that interview, 
And I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds wonderful. I got the book right away. I read it. I've like passed it around to different friends of mine and they loved it. And I ended up in early 2017 when you opened up your playing big course for enrollment. I joined, I did it. I loved it, all of it. And I was thinking recently about how right around that time I did a huge shift in my life. I uh, let go of that other business. I started the business I have now. It was entirely different and super, super scary. Uh, and I kept thinking like, I really want to talk about this book on my podcast because it was the book that really was the, the springboard for me to, to do the leap, to do the, the big leap. And, but then I was like, I want to actually hear from you and have you explain it a little bit more. So I would first love to know how you, when you think of playing big, how, like, what is your, you know, elevator speech for what playing big is? And also how did you come to this work? Like it obviously took you a ton of time and research to write this book. So why were you so compelled to do that? Hmm. Great. Okay. Maybe I'll start with that, that second one. Okay. Uh, for me, even as a little girl, I was always noticing the places that women's voices were missing. Like we would go to religious services and it would be all guys up in front of the congregation or we're reading, you know, old Testament stories. And I'm like, what, how come all the women are just like a wife who gets killed at some point or <laughs> the third wife? Like what, where are the women? So I was noticing that from a very young age and I felt pained by that from a very young age, partly because I think it made me personally feel a little like a stranger in a strange land. Like I don't belong here. I, you know, we, we go to this congregation, but I guess people like me aren't allowed to be in front of it. Or I go to school, but I guess we're never going to talk about someone like me in history class. So I was always aware of that. And I was really interested in women's issues. And I was, you know, joining the women's empowerment club or whatever at school and, you know, what, whatever I could find those things. Um, and at the same time, I was very interested in psychology and personal growth. I grew up with a mom who um, didn't have a, a training as a psychologist, but she had had her own like very chaotic and painful childhood. And the way she had found her way out of it was like, I'm going to read Freud and I'm going to read Carl Jung. I'm going to read these psychology books and I'm going to try and understand the pain that happened in my family. And I'm going to try and understand why people are doing the things they do. So she raised me, you know, literally with, I can remember coming home and saying, you know, this boy chased me on the playground today and he's a jerk. And she would say, well, what do you think's happening for him at home that would cause him to chase another child? Like when I was five, that's what she was mm -hmm. saying. So I grew up with a very psychological lens for looking at the world. And I wanted to work in that realm, but I saw the path of being a therapist and thought, well, that feels a little lonely to me. I'm a huge extrovert. I also love the arts and performing. So I know I just don't want to sit in a room one-to-one -one with someone and so later in my life, actually, I, I worked in the nonprofit world. I was very always very interested in things with a social mission. So I was working in the nonprofit world. Then I went to get an MBA where I sort of had a nonprofit and social sector focus. But there I was exposed to coaching because in the business world was starting to wake up to coaching. And I saw these women who were coaches. And I just literally can remember, like, I remember seeing them walk across campus and it like looked like they had a spring in their step. Like, this is like, yeah. wow, they have a spring in their step. And they just looked lit up, you know? And then I thought, wow, they're getting to talk to people about personal growth, but not in this way that's necessarily focused on the harder parts of life, but in this very exciting, forward-looking way. So that really intrigued me. And I kind of put that in my, like, back pocket as, as a thought. And... Um, and then I went to work in the nonprofit world and I worked for a large foundation that had $2 billion under management that giving away, you know, from their endowment off of the $2 billion, working on really important social issues. And I worked with all these amazing women colleagues and my boss was an amazing woman. And yet 
at the executive table, it was all men Mm. pretty much. And so once I saw up close, wow, our organization is full of highly competent, hardworking, diligent women. And we're even doing all the right things. Like we're following the instructions of getting the degrees and getting the good grades and doing good background research. And then some guy will sweep into a meeting with an unformed opinion and declare it really confidently. And then $3 million get invested in that direction when there's not even any data behind it. And that bothered me so much. And it also made me feel like maybe this isn't my career path because I, I'm going to end up one of these over, an overlooked and under-recognized women. So that was happening. I was also missing my own creative self and my own woo-woo spiritual self that had kind of gotten stamped out by business school and all of that. So I thought, well, I'm going to just go explore coaching to get all of that back kind of for myself. It'll be like taking a personal growth workshop to take a coaching training. Then I started coaching women on the side of my job and I saw everyone's dealing with this sort of issue of being highly competent and brilliant, but not seeing themselves as ready and not being heard in their workplace. So I felt, okay, I have to help my coaching clients achieve their goals, but my traditional coaching training didn't cover all of these issues that come up for women, especially and the imposter syndrome and the good girl habits. And it just wasn't about that. So I really started to experiment with what would help my clients. And that's what became the, then the tools in the playing big course. And then eventually the playing big book. Um, and for the women entrepreneurs, you know, listening who are thinking about, I want to have my own body of work, or how do I develop thought leadership around something? I really like, for me, I really love that trajectory and I still use it of like, do the one-on-one work with people, see the patterns, you know, that's where you get your material and then teach larger groups or write about it because nothing can compare to the, the relevance and accuracy you can have if it's really coming out of that real one-on-one work where you had to deliver a result for a person. Yeah. I, I agree so, so much with that, that it's, it's really that like uh, clarity comes through action when you get to experience it firsthand. And then you kind of realize like, Oh, I have this methodology or I have this framework or, Oh, this is a pattern or yeah, I love that. So in terms of playing big, if you're at, you know, if you're at a mixer, if you're at a networking event yeah. and someone's like, Tara, what the heck is playing big? What do you right. say back to them? Right. Well, I think I'm probably a testament for how far you can get in your career with a, no elevator pitch because yeah. I still hate the idea of one. I don't know how to do it. I mean, really. And I even will complain to my husband. I'm like, however it is, I'm describing my work. Like people basically walk away after I say one phrase about it. Like whatever I'm saying is like a repellent. It's like I get no business, no interest, nothing from how I ta- casually talk to people about it. And I'm still not sure why. Um, so I have, I have yet to figure that one out. But to me, the essence of what playing big is really about is um, how do we unlearn all the ways of self-censoring that just being a human in our culture. And then on top of that, especially being a woman in our culture has caused us to um, put on ourselves. How do we trust our own voices? How do we find out what's really our callings are and go for them in order to contribute in the world? And so my, and my shorthand definition that I use in the book is playing big is more being more loyal to your dreams than to your fears. Mm -hmm. So what playing big means is different to each individual. It's not necessarily what looks big to others. It's your real dreams. And are you going for that? It's living your life in such a way that you're not going to end up with regret of, I didn't go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and that is definitely what resonated with me. And I love that you said you don't have like a clear elevator pitch because honestly, I don't either. And sometimes I'm like, I'll get all in my head about it. And then I'm like, nah, you know what? I, whatever, it's fine. It doesn't really matter. I think that's good proof that like, you don't have to have all of these like marketing bells and whistles to actually be successful with yeah. thing. Cause yeah. I always change yeah. up what I say based on who I'm talking to. <laughs> if it's a man, I'm like, I just do business consulting. 
Cause they don't, they're right. not my target. I'm like, they're like, Oh, that's it. Okay, great. Yeah. I'm yeah. Like, it doesn't know, matter. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So I love that. And I, I will say, um, that in all of that, in the, the working with people and like really recounting their stories in your book for anyone listening, who's like, Oh my gosh, I don't know if this is for me because I don't want like another like self-help or personal growth book or, you know, is it super woo woo? Like it's, it's really not like it was honestly reading people's real stories, uh, real women's stories who are like far more well-educated than I am more traditionally successful than I am. And knowing that they were still struggling with these similar things, I was like at this juncture where I really was like, should I go to grad school for business to be like, to do the work I do now? Right. Or should I do these graduate level certificate programs? And then reading this book, I was like, oh no, that's just a trap. Like that is a trap that women fall into. And I actually am really qualified. And if these other women who are on paper, smarter and more successful than me still think that they need more certificates or more schooling or more permission, then like, I will never be able to get to that point. And if I'm never able to get to that point, then why should I not just start right now? Mm. And that was huge. Like, I mean, literally some of your case studies in there, I'm like, well, shit, if she thinks that she's not qualified, like we're, the rest of us are just screwed. (laughs) I love that. I love the point you're making there because it's so true that when we, when we see the women that we're sure have every reason to be confident, when we understand their self-doubt, it changes everything. And like even recently at the high, when the Hivery had um, hosted Diane von Furstenberg and she came and did a chat with everyone. And she said, I would say, you know, about two days out of the week, I wake up just thinking I'm a total loser. You know, she's oh like my about gosh. two out of seven. And it's like, how in the world? And that's even so not only different from how others see her, it's so different from how she's living each day of her life. Right. So that was yet another one. But yeah, I mean, the, the imposter syndrome, the, I mean, I, I don't like to use the term usually imposter syndrome because it conveys it's a syndrome as if some people have it and some people don't. And as far as I can tell, all, all of us have it, um, about some domain or another. Um, but yeah, and now even since I wrote the book, there was a study showing that 45% of entry-level, junior-level women in corporate America would say they feel you know, some moderate level of confidence. And when you ask executive-level women, 55% do, which is not a very big difference, mm-hmm. right? So that means you only have a, basically a one in 10 chance of your confidence level changing if you've gone from entry level to executive in corporate America. And there's reasons for that. You know, there's reasons that have to do with what, what self-doubt actually comes from, which is obviously not the facts and the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but it's powerful to, it's really powerful to realize it. Yeah. And that, that is really grim. And I'm glad that you brought that up because part of why I really wanted to get this interview out now is, I mean, yes, we're dealing with a global pandemic and that is really awful. But I think that what is interesting about it is at least in America or especially in America, it's really bringing to light a lot of inequities and a lot of really dire situations that we've just been sort of, I don't know, turning like a blind eye to or putting band-aids on that are really exacerbated. And I feel very deeply that, especially like among women, we already have the solutions. Like we're just way too scared to say, you know what? I am actually smart and talented. And I think I have some really good ideas and I think I should share those ideas. And I think I should run for office or start this company or do whatever. But this shit, (laughs) this playing small just really gets in the way. And that makes me feel like like this needs to more women need to know about this now and like commit to playing bigger because I almost feel like we, we cannot wait any longer. Like we are at a crossroads that is just so bleak. And I, and I'm deeply like in my gut, I'm like, I know that we already can fix this and it might, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be overnight, 
but like it will never happen if we continuously get you know, keep getting caught up in this like mental garbage that is keeping us, that is really holding us back. Yeah. 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 I mean, one of my beliefs is that the amount of suffering in the world is always exactly equal to our capacity, our latent capacity to heal that suffering. Meaning it's actually, in terms of the, the potential we have and the need we have, those are always in balance. So mm-hmm. when you're seeing a whole lot of unaddressed, unhealed suffering or unmet needs in the world, that's showing you how much of our capacity to heal it and meet those needs we're not using. Yeah, There's a lot of latent capacity. And I think that women, the solutions that women bring, yes, we're leveraging our education and we're leveraging our know-how, but a lot of what we bring, it's comes from who we are, right? Mm -hmm. It comes from our natural intelligence. It comes from the gifts we have out of our personality, our strengths, who we are. It comes from our vision. It comes from our hearts. And our culture has totally indoctrinated us in the message that the, va- the only value we can bring comes from the degree we got mm-hmm. or the expertise that we have, all this stuff that we had to absorb from the outside, right? And so it's really hard for women to say, I can see how the care and passion and desire to help an idea that, you know, just flew in from last week. That's a really great idea flew in from wherever in the cosmos. I can see how that, I can trust that. I can trust the value of that because that's not the message we've been given. But I think we really need to look at, you know, whose agenda is that, that we so distrust our natural passion and ideas and caring. And it comes up all the time. You know, like I just got a question from someone who said, you know, I'm, I really want to start this social enterprise in sort of the in, in, um, international development arena. And she had some really relevant experience, but she was saying, I think I would have to go back and get a business degree and a poli sci degree to do this. And I, my question back is always, you know, do you have overwhelming evidence from the world that that is the case? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like have a hundred doors shut with the message to you, sorry, honey, not until you get those two specific degrees. Of course not. Like nobody ever has yeah. any evidence for that belief. Um, but it's a really pervasive one. And it's a kind of comfort zone that we hide in because if we are always convincing of ourselves that we need the next degree or certification. We don't have to do the scary thing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't have to put yourself out there and, and sell, really sell yourself and sell your idea. Yeah. That is it. it yeah. It really is so hard. And I think that in most cases, you know, obviously there are some things like that you legally have to be certified to do, but I feel like for so many things, that is just not the case. We're just working off of assumptions. Of, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Like if you want to perform brain surgery, definitely go get all the relevant degrees. Yeah. But I think we've really overemphasized kind of specialization and, and formal expertise in a lot of other areas where it's not, it's not needed. We, we can be generalists and do the thing really well. And we might even be better as generalists because sometimes expertise um, causes us to have real blind spots too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I know, so the, the book kicks off with inner critic, which is so good and, and so worthwhile to, for people to read that part. But I know that now, like, I feel like since I first encountered this, like your book was the first time I encountered inner critic. I feel like now there's so much about inner critic, but what I don't ever hear a lot about is the next part, the inner mentor. Mm. And I think that that is really, really important because at the end of the day, like I know that that inner critic, that like inner mean girl, she just never goes away. Like we're just hardwired. She's always going to be floating around somewhere, but the inner mentor is so powerful. So I would love for you to explain that. Yeah. Yeah. So the inner mentor is like the voice of wisdom 
that it turns out we all have inside of us. And part of the reason I, I start off with inner critic is because we all recognize pretty quickly. We all can say, oh yeah, I know that voice of self-doubt. I, I know the voice, there is a voice in my head that's saying, you know, you got to lose 10 pounds before you do this and you're terrible at that. And you know, you've never been good with money or whatever yours says to you. So we recognize that pretty quickly. The inner mentor voice in us is a little harder to find and most of us are less acquainted with it. But there's a guided meditation that's in the book um, that comes from the Coaches Training Institute where I did my coaching training. Um, but you can get the audio of it um, on my website. We can put a link to it for listeners today. Um, and by going into a meditation and relaxing your body and moving into kind of a right brain space of more visual imagery, we can meet a sort of older, wiser version of ourselves. And what so many people discover in doing that is that right there inside of them all along has been this um, kind of um, archetypal wise woman, like Joseph Campbell talks about, we're in the acorn state, but we all have the oak tree we're meant to become. And mm -hmm. within the acorn are all the instructions needed to become the oak tree. And, and even though the acorn looks and is totally different from the oak tree, somehow the oak tree is inside the acorn, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how our inner mentor is with us. It's like a more fully developed, fully realized, authentic, and calm and wise version of ourselves. And I think it's kind of the biggest secret is that we all walk around with our crazy and our uncertainties and our confusion and our overactive minds. And yet right there, there actually is this totally other part of ourselves that often can see things really clearly when we'd otherwise feel confused, that is very calm about things our regular brain is anxious about. So we just have to learn how to access it. And once you have that vision of your oak tree, like what's, who are, who, who are you really meant to become? Then you can steer your life like, okay, is that, is that what my inner mentor would do? Is that bringing me closer to her reality? And it's a great criteria to make decisions by, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, in very practical ways, I have to write this really difficult email. How would she write it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or I'm choosing between two things. What would she choose or what gets me closer to her? Yeah. Cause I think that there is a lot that is sold to us of what our future should look like. Like I, like you said earlier about playing big doesn't have to be the same for everyone. And it doesn't even have to look like something very big. And I think that even if your idea is like, I'm just gonna, you know, I don't know, rescue animals and live in like a very quaint house in a small town and just like foster kittens or something like that's awesome. And it doesn't have to be super glamorous or posh or sparkly. Like just do, do the thing that your soul kind of wants you to do. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I always think about in one of the early years of the course, we had a woman in the course who was working in a, in a big corporate job and she was in this tier where everyone in that tier of the company was competing for this one specific promotion that one person was going to get. And she got it. And it was a big deal. It was a big deal for her as a woman, as a woman of color to get it. And everyone was congratulating her and she thought about it for a few days and she decided not to take it. And she decided not to take it because she was in the middle of a project with her team that was a five-year arc and they were like in year three and a half. And she was like, I want to see this project through. I care about it. Mm. I care about this team. And she also said, you know, my company has this up, up, up culture 
where everybody's vying for the next promotion. And as a result, people move around a lot and it's destroying a lot of the value that we could bring as a company. Like it's Mm. not good. And she was in a very sort of competitive male dominated, you know, kind of situation. And so that was also her critique. And I thought it was such a powerful kind of grounding in more, um, uh, in values that, you know, feel very connected to where, what, what women carry in the culture. Like I'm going to focus on relationship and real, the real results here, not the prestige and not the hierarchy. And that was her playing big. Her playing big was to turn down the promotion. Like it took so much courage and it wasn't just, it wasn't just an opting out of playing big. It was her playing big because mm-hmm. for her, that was her living by her values. And then of course, what happened a couple of years later was she got picked for this even more senior plum role because she became known as someone who sees things through and who's not mm-hmm. just going for the next promotion, but is you know really working by her values. So it can look all kinds of ways depending on what that individual woman's um, dreams and values are and what really is the thing for her that takes courage. Yeah, I love that you uh, that you shared that specific story because I think that, that that is one of those hard things where we would think like, I'm gonna be so judged if I if I turn this down and people are gonna be disappointed and they're gonna think I'm really stupid or you know, whatever. And, uh, and I think it's, it's really, it's really hard. And that was very much around the time when I, um, first happened to read your book, I was in a point in my previous business where I had had a lot of success and I was checking all the boxes and I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do. Like the, you know, the upward motion, like in, um, you know, like next ladders of success and I wasn't happy and I felt really weird and really guilty for a long time because I was like, there are people who would kill to be in the position that I am in. And should I just settle? Like, should I just be okay with where I am? And I, I really feel like my inner mentor and, and like, I definitely, I, ta- I try to tamp that voice down for still for a while afterwards, because I was terrified of like leaping and, and playing bigger. Uh, but I feel like ultimately my, my inner voice, my inner mentor was like, no, you will not, you will not be happy. Like, it's okay to walk away. It's okay. If this is still other people's dream, it doesn't have to be your dream anymore. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was really big, but it was hard. And I will say there was a time in between where I was like, oh no, no, I'm going to start this other business, this other project. Cause I really didn't want to face what playing bigger meant for me. Mm. I was still basing it off of what I thought would be acceptable, like just in general and, and what other people would find as acceptable. Um, and then, and ultimately I was like, no, I can't, like, I, I felt like I was living a lie. So I, I really appreciate the inner mentor exercise. Mm. Yeah. And you're also illustrating how when our, when we hear something like that from our inner mentor, we can really feel the truth and resonance of it, mm-hmm. which is another part of what makes inner mentor so powerful. Cause an outside person could say to us, trust yourself, honey, and maybe Maybe we could try and believe them, but we wouldn't feel it in our bones, the possibility of that. And there's something about once we've gotten that sense of our inner mentor, then when we hear that guidance from her, we can really feel the truth of it. And it's enough, it gives us enough to then take action from there. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And that is sort of an interesting segue into the like, like that woman with choosing to turn it down and possibly being judged is... Uh, you talk a lot about unhooking from praise and criticism, yeah, which I really, really, really love. And I feel like even in the years since I first read this and I went back and I was rereading, I feel like it is so relevant now because I mean, I know, so I'm like a words of affirmation person. So like, Mm -hmm. I'm, I mean, I love like... I love praise. I totally do. Like, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, just because of the, you know, my love language is words of affirmation, but 
the criticism and all of the parts that you dig into in the book are, they are so real. And I feel like now with like cancel culture, it is, it's just amplified. Like everything is so visible and you could so publicly screw up and have strangers all over, like from all over the world telling you what an awful person you are. So like, I I just, I would love to like hear your thoughts on that just because it has changed. And, um, and I totally highlighted, like you have stuff about the good girl, um, mentality. And that is only in the last, I would say maybe year or two. It's really a practice I've been working on because I have always been such a good girl. Like even when I was doing bad things in high school and college, I would present to the grownups in my life like, oh no, but I'm very good. Like I'm checking all the boxes. I'm doing all the right things. Um, and yeah, only, only recently I've kind of just been like, you know what? It's like, I don't need to be that person anymore. (laughs) Like I can, I don't know if you, if you're into true crime or if you listen to the, my favorite murder podcast, but they have a phrase that's fuck politeness. And it usually, it has to do with like, like women getting into bad, uncomfortable situations uh, and not listening to their intuition and like uh, reteaching women to fuck politeness, like for their yeah. own safety and, and protection and things like that. But I feel like it kind of just encompasses everything. Like yeah. I don't want to be that polite person anymore. If in being polite, I'm minimizing what I feel like is right for myself and right for the world. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened for me when I had just started in my coaching practice, like first I had one, one client came and she said, I really want to pursue my side project, you know, this organization I'm trying to start that I'm really passionate about, but I just don't have enough time because my day job is so demanding and I need, you know, coaching to help me be accountable and figure out how to make more time. I'm like, okay. And then it became clear in the first session, time, of course, was not the issue. Time is rarely the real issue. And instead, it was the thing that she wanted to start was going to be very controversial in her field. She had worked in domestic violence prevention for a long time, and she had her own point of view about how to create services that would be more effective. And she knew that a lot of her mentors even were going to be not like it, maybe be threatened by it. And that was terrifying. And it was especially terrifying to her because she had been the star student in her field, you know, like so many of us, she had been trying to do all the right things. And, and so now what did it mean that work was going to be controversial? So that was like, oh, that was interesting. And then like the next week, another client came along and she's like, I need you to help me with career transition because I've decided I don't like my industry and I'm, you know, leaving. And then when we got into it, it was like, well, actually I love most of the parts of my job, but now that I'm this senior partner in my firm, the way the culture is, all these partners are, we, there's a lot of critical feedback between us a lot on documents. And it's just sapping my energy. I cry all the time. It doesn't feel good. You know? And so I'm thinking of now leaving this field that I actually, I mean, really she was saying a field I love and a position that I worked for 20 years to get into because the criticism mm-hmm. is so uncomfortable. So I like, I had those two examples and then a couple more came in and I really started to feel like, oh, like we need, we need a framework and we need some tools to deal particularly with the criticism that comes as we get more senior in our work. Um, but also in some ways, the other side of that is dealing with our attachment to praise, of mm-hmm. course, right? And I was also noticing, because at that time, I still had my own day job in the nonprofit world, and there were a few really amazing women leaders of other nonprofits that I would sort of sometimes be in the same orbit with. And what was true of all of them was that like half of their colleagues loved them and half of their colleagues hated them with a passion. Mm -hmm. And yet they were undoubtedly the stars of the field. And I was like, so fascinated by that. I'm like, They've, you know, they've, they've like 100 X'd their organization's budgets over their tenure as leaders. They've, you know, grown these things. They're known as just these complete rock stars. And like, 
how is it possible that they did that with like really, I mean, a good 50% of the colleagues, the funders, like hating them with an act of passion. And it struck me that I was seeing something that was so different than the message I had got in girlhood, which was all the teachers need to like you. Mm-hmm. You know, every teacher needs to think you wrote a good paper. Every class you need to bring home an A. Everyone in the class has to find you likable. Mm-hmm. Versus I was looking at these leaders. It's like, well, half of the world's giving them an A. Half of the world's giving them an F. And is there really any way it could have been otherwise? Because to get those amazing results, they were having to do things that were controversial they were having to piss some people off. They were having to make decisions that other people didn't like. And there were certainly female professionals in the community that were more universally popular, but they also weren't getting amazing results, right? Mm-hmm. So th- those, all those sort of things in combination, you know, really got me thinking about, yeah, if we're going to do substantive work as women, there is going to be a mixed and polarized reaction. Mm-hmm. Maybe on the internet, maybe off the internet, maybe in your family, maybe in your whatever, but it's going to come. And then how do we deal with that as people who have been trained above all, be likable, of all, above all, keep the peace and have the harmony and make sure, you know, incorporate everyone's feedback. It's like, no, we actually don't have to incorporate everyone's feedback. <laughs> we have yeah. to incorporate the feedback of the people who's, you know, are absolutely necessary to have on board to achieve our goals. And that's it. We could leave the other 95% of the feedback alone. So yeah. So that was kind of the origin of that. And, um, and the primary tool that I teach around that, that, that is really impactful for, for people is this idea that the feedback you get does not tell you anything about yourself. It only tells you about the people who are giving you the feedback. It tells you about their preferences, their priorities, um, their perspective. And you might still want to take that all really seriously and incorporate it and adapt to it if they're your customers or your, you know, loved ones or whatever. But it's not about, it's not about you. It's really giving us insight about them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I know I have that quote highlighted in the book. And it also reminds me of the other saying the what other people think of you is none of your business, which is like such a radical way of putting it and really hard to absorb, I think, for a lot of women. But it's true. Like I've seen for, you know, for some of my clients and just for other people online that even when they put out stuff that's free and, and valuable to a lot of people, there are still people who criticize them about it. And it's not even polarizing. Like it's literally just like, well, I wish you would have talked more about this. And it's like, okay, well I didn't. And it's free. It's like, I'm just teaching you something in a YouTube video. So sorry, but like people will still get criticized even for things that like are not radically, you know, like polarizing or political or anything. It's just like, yeah, somebody's having maybe a bad day or they're stressed out. And so they're like, I'm just going to lash out at this person on social media because I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, world. sometimes it's that. But even in that example, even like if, if I, let's say I'm doing a video and then I get feedback, you know, I wish you would have talked more about that, about such and such. If I, in that moment, am taking that as a criticism of me or the video, I am going to get pretty either hurt or defensive, you know, Mm -hmm. hurt if I take it as a, some sort of, oh, I did something wrong. Defensive. If I'm like, come on, you know, that was free or, you know, I just like, I don't, I think I talked about just the things I need to talk about. So in both of those cases, I'm completely missing the opportunity to learn something about my audience. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Cause if that person is in my audience, then if I know in that moment, I'm not hearing about me, I'm hearing about them, mm-hmm. then I know I, I have the opportunity to get really curious. Like, oh, yeah. that's what they're interested in? Okay. Is that something I have something to say about? And it becomes really useful. So you know, part of that mental shift of the feedback tells me about them is that it then allows us to be non-defensive and really mm-hmm. curious so we can use feedback in a strategic way instead of, you know, going on an emotional roller coaster with it. Definitely. And I, I feel like that's one of those times where you could 
really use that inner mentor as a filter and say like, if this person says they want to hear more about this, but I actually, my larger values and, and what I'm here for, I really don't actually want to talk more about that. Like I want to stay in my own lane over here to be like, I'm just going to unemotionally say like, that's wonderful that you want to hear more about that. But actually uh, these three other people are more experts in that. Why don't you go to them? Cause I prefer to stay in my lane over here and just like, yeah, totally detach from like positive or negative emotion or yeah. feeling obligated to, to fulfill that. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So the last thing that I wanted to touch on and I'm probably, so I know Yura, but is it- <laughs> I already knew what you were going to say. There's only one thing in There's the- There's only one word that's hard to say. nervous about pronunciation. <laughs> I don't speak yeah. Hebrew, but- Ahad and Yura. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I really, really, th- like this was huge for me because- I feel like it gave me language around something that I didn't have language for previously that also operates as a filter for like, is this in the right direction or is this the wrong direction? So for you right in there that Pahad is the overreactive irrational fear that stems from worries about what could happen about worst case scenarios we imagine which I think is like, oh my gosh, like we just are living in a sea of that all the time. Um, And then Yira, which is such a beautiful word, has three meanings, but I feel like the first one is the one that so much applies to like the the, like women entrepreneurs, right? So the feeling that overcomes us when we inhabit a larger space than we're used to. And this was really good because I feel like there are so many times when we just say, I'm afraid, like this feels scary, but to know that there's like the real, like a negative fear and like a butterflies in your stomach fear is I think really helpful because then I can sort of, if I'm thinking about, Oh, I want to do this program. I can think, am I fearful that it will flop or am I, am I creating this out of a fear that like people really want this thing or what? Like, it's just, it's, it's kind of like all murky and weird or am I afraid because it's uncharted territory because I'm about to step into playing bigger into this bigger space than I'm comfortable with but I'm also like exhilarated in the process. And I feel like when I can balance a thought against those two fears, if it's Yura, I'm like, let's, you know, let's do it. Like, let's, we're going to leap. It's going to be terrifying. Yes, but let's do it. And when it's Pahad, I'm like, yeah, no, she's like, shut it down. So (laughs) yes. I love listening to this. I'm like, you're ready to teach the material. You got it. I'm happy to, but how (laughs) did you like, how did you know about those two things or where did you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so I was reading a book just for my own kind of my own spiritual reading. I was reading a book by Rabbi Alan Liu, um, who was a San Francisco rabbi and meditation teacher. And he was talking about, um, cause both of those terms, Pachad and Yira are Old Testament ancient Hebrew terms. So he was talking about sort of in the textual analysis of, oh, there's two different words for fear used in the Old Testament. And pahad is this, as you're saying, fear of the imagined things, the projections out into the future. And then he talked about yira of this is how, what Moses, um, the word used to describe how Moses is feeling at the burning bush. So it's kind of when we have an encounter with the sacred, which I would say our playing big is also an encounter with the sacred mm-hmm. of our truth and our, our aspirations. Um, that there's this feeling yira, this word yira, and he said, you know, has three definitions. It's what we feel in, in the presence of the sacred, what we feel when we're encountering when we're inhabiting a larger space than we're accustomed to, and also what we feel when we suddenly come into possession of more energy than we normally have. And it is this, it's exhilaration and awe. 
it's a, this special, almost um, heightened, positive, spiritual kind of fear in a way, mm-hmm. right? So I, I was reading that and I thought, oh, like that happens all the time in my coaching sessions, you know? And I immediately thought back to a session where a woman who had had a lifetime banking career just got, finally got out of her mouth, like, I want to leave banking. I want to go into the international development world. I want to move to a developing country. And it was a very long held but unspoken yearning for her. And when she said it, of course, for the first time, she was crying. And there was such a sense of sacredness in the air in our session because it was like, this important thing had just finally come up from all the way deep in her belly, you know, out of her mouth for the first time. And you could hear a pin drop in the room and we could both feel that something sacred had entered the room just Mm -hmm. by her honoring that truth. And then right on the heels of that came, you know, but I'm so afraid. And I, I saw that would happen a lot in coaching sessions. Like people would tell sort of a sacred truth mm-hmm. and we could hang on to it in its beauty for a moment and then the fear would sweep in. And so when I read that, I thought, oh, this is actually gives us language for this special kind of fear. Yeah. And if we could talk about it that way, like you're saying, we could, we could recognize that it actually is positive even if a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. it's positive. And then we could talk about how do I lean into that and welcome that. It's very different from a coach in a moment where they see their clients getting stuck in a mm-hmm. worst case scenario fear. And we got to switch up the perspective. We don't want to switch up the perspective away from that more sacred exhilaration. Um, so so that was the origin of it. And it's, it's actually been really, really fun to talk about because People don't know those terms for sure, you know, and um, they resonate for a lot of people. And also shortly, maybe, I don't know, a couple, I don't know the exact year, but in between when I read it and now, um, Rabbi Lou passed away and he sort of had an early passing. And I, so I always think, you know, because I've gotten to talk about those ideas and translate them in this way in a lot of like mainstream media and stuff. It just feels really special to know like that message is getting carried out in new ways. Um, Even though he's no longer here, still writing and talking about it on this particular planet and realm. Yeah. I love that. It is really, really beautiful. And I, I would hope and wish that more people would would know about them. I know we're almost out of time. Um, I want you to be able to talk about your, um, your programs you do, but I have a good friend who, when she knew I was doing the interview, she actually lives near you. And I said, you know, if you have a question, I would, you know, like, like, let me know. I'll ask her. So I have a son who's 15, but she has two younger kids and one is a little baby girl. And she said, what can we do as parents to girls? And I, you know, I think boys too, but, but especially to girls to instill this in them at an early age. So they automatically get more comfortable with playing bigger. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, and I, I don't know that I've got one thing. I mean, of course what parents model in their own lives is, is probably most important. So looking at your own playing big, you know, and are you, how are you working with your own inner critic? Are you no, are you going for your own callings? Um, but, you know, in a way we could say that a lot of our playing small comes from learning to not trust ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so as parents, we constantly have opportunities I mean, I can't actually think of a minute of parenting that isn't an opportunity to take a stand about the extent to which your kid can trust themselves or not. Mm -hmm. Do they get to trust when they're full and done with dinner? Do they get to trust, you know, that when they're angry, there's a good reason for it? Do they get to trust, um, do they get to trust their interests for learning And of course, as a parent, that's nuanced because, you know, do I want my six-year-old to trust his 
addiction to the golf game. We just allowed him to start playing on the iPad <laughs> while we're in shelter in place. No, that's not really the part of himself I want him to trust. But, um, but I think that's really huge, you know, especially, especially for our girls who probably, you know, even get, but, but, you know, our boys, our boys get a lot of strong messages about that too, mm-hmm. especially don't trust your tears. Don't trust your sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Don't trust your heart, you know? Um, so I, I think, I think that, and, um, that's sort of what I'm trying to write about now is like that really what happens if we really have a very deep level of trust about who we are, who our kids are. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that going back to the era, like, I think that we are just like seeped in pod, just, just constantly all the time in our world. But I feel like it's those like era moments and thoughts going back to the very beginning of what we were talking about, like that's where all the beautiful answers lie in what we can bring to the world that will heal it. It's just like, we have to get more comfortable listening to Yura and not worrying about being judged or criticized and just say like, I trust that the magic that the world needs of me is like, it's in this and I just have to do it. Yes. So beautifully said. Thank you. We're working on the same team. We got the same mission. (laughs) I know. Totally. Like, absolutely. I think that's why I I really like resonated with your book. So everyone listening should get the book and read it uh, if you haven't already or go back through and look at everything you highlighted. I'm a big like highlighter in my books. My husband thinks it's insane, but I'm like, what? How do you not highlight the important stuff in the books? Um, But tell me a little bit about the other programs that you offer for people who want to do deeper work with you. Yeah. Yeah. So the book is a great place to start. And there is an audio book too, which a lot of people like, cause I read it. Um, and then we have two courses. So the playing big course, which you took is for any, um, person who wants to play bigger in their life and their work. And we, we talk about all these concepts, but it's very experiential. So it's like lots of live workshop kind of things and coaching and, um, really getting to practice the tools. And then we also have the playing big facilitators training, which is for people who want, want the playing big process for themselves, but also want to use these tools and ideas in their work with others. So we have a lot of coaches in that program, um, also therapists, people who use it in all kinds of ways in, in the mentoring they do people who work in companies and use the playing big framework in managing, Um, lots of women academics who use it in teaching and advising. So anyone who's really supporting others in their playing big and in their growth can incorporate those tools. Um, And there's lots of information about both of those on the website. And I still write, you know, regularly online. I love that. And so just um, being in touch with, uh, you know, for emails and blog posts, I still call it blogging. I don't know what yeah. So that's a great way to get more too. Awesome. Yeah. And I will say that you're, um, I love the emails from you because they're, they are really like educational and informative and like you put your, your new writing in them. So I really like that. And your Instagram is great for. Thanks. I just started doing more on Instagram. So thank you for noticing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting more of the into it and getting more of a sense of how I, how I want to show up there. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. As like a weird aside. So I've been on TikTok during all of this, like, yes. I, know, I know we're going to hop off, but like, um, just as like, just, you know, to chill and like have some ridiculous social media that I don't feel like I have to create content for or anything. And it is just filled with amazing, like mental health professionals that are teaching people like all the, like, I was like, Oh, isn't it just like moms, like dancing right. and kids like dance? Like, no, like it's, all of these people who are like really like affirming and wonderful and helping people. Like, I was like, wow, this whole, this I need whole a job. Job. how are you, how are you finding them? I haven't been on TikTok yet at all, but, uh, so TikTok is really interesting when you first get on it, it just kind of shows you whatever is like the most popular on the main feed. But as you like heart or like, you know, like okay. um, different content, the algorithm is really brilliant and it will learn right away, like what you like. And so now I have all of these people who are, um, like professionals of all different sorts who 
educate people in this really fun, accessible way and these short little videos, but it's super, super, super awesome. And I'm like, wow, I really had no idea. It's this whole other world. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. I am really happy to see more. I feel like just so recently there's like this influx of therapists starting to teach more and be more content creators on, on social media and otherwise. And I think that's great. Like there was, I think there was a bit of a lag where like mm-hmm. coaches were in that space, but therapists weren't as yeah. much. And, um, I'm, I'm so happy to see more of that happening now. Yeah, me too. It's, it's really, it's really great. Well, this is awesome. Every, I'll, you know, all the links and everything will be available for people. They should definitely check you out and read the book, but thank you again thank you. for your time well, thank and your you brilliance. So much. Thank <laughs> you for your brilliance and all your warmth and enthusiasm and such a, like, I feel like you've taken such a deep dive into the material and really gotten it. So it's really moving and affirming to kind of hear it back through your lens. Oh, thank you. That's really sweet. Well, this was great. And I know my audience is absolutely going to love it. And thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Sell It Sister podcast. If you loved it and you want more, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And then head on over to sellitsisterhood.com to join my free Facebook community group. And as your mama said, sharing is caring. So if you got a lot of value out of this episode, be sure to share it with your biz besties too, okay? Now get out there and sell it, sister.